It was last summer I met um, an old school friend. <coughs> this um, school friend I hadn't seen for years, more than a decade. And um, uh, in that time he's become a, uh, a nationally respected man in his profession. He took me out to an impossibly expensive cafe. We drank our cafe lattes. And he tried to absorb the fact that I'd become a vicar and a substandard type at that. And he looked me in the eye and he said, don't you think you've hitched your cart to the wrong horse? And I, I have to say, I could understand... Um, that conclusion of his, a month at the moment, never seems to go by without some new, ever more lurid prediction of the death of Christianity in Britain. Just this last month, there was a report predicting that um, uh, the British church would be shutting up shop completely by the year 2040. I don't think I'll be around to find out whether that's true or not. Maybe I will, just about. Um, even the former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, said uh, in a lecture um, just recently that the Church of England is, I quote, a church that is running out of cash, has lost its vision and is becoming a club for the elderly. I have to say, though, that um, my experience is different. First of all, I see something very different every Sunday. Thank God... Uh, we are a million miles from being a, a, a visionless, um, impoverished club for the elderly. I feel like an old man myself sometimes when I look across at the faces. And I know as well that um, uh, the elderly amongst us um, rejoice that this church is actually remarkably useful. At least they rejoice on a good day, don't you? <laughs> But more than that, actually, I think something else is happening in our nation. We are certainly entering a time when uh, Christianity is no longer the religion of the establishment, where it's no longer the thing you do just to be respectable going along to church. We are entering a time when, when Christianity um, is not the religion of the nation. For 1,500 years or so, um, Christians have, in Europe at least, have been living with uh, a concept that they've called Christendom, the land where Christ rules. The reality underneath that was often very, very different. And today we live in a world where it's not even pretended that there is such a place as Christendom. And that may mean that um, uh, the number of attenders at churches that you count on a Sunday has declined somewhat. But I don't think it means the death of the church. And the reason I don't think it means the death of the church is because actually God's church for the first 300 years of its life lived in exactly that environment and flourished and thrived and grew to become a global movement and had a profound influence uh, upon the, the rest of history as it has unfolded. Now there are other statistics that I think are very significant for our country. 
for instance, within a decade or so, Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals, are predicted to be the dominant force in every Protestant uh, denomination. seems to me that God in this country is purifying his church. We have an enormous amount to do. And in fact, I don't expect that we will ever get back to, to uh, what it was like in a previous age because that is a mythical golden age. I'm full of confidence, brimming with confidence, in fact, that in this new environment, God's church can perhaps find the voice that God really wants her to have and make the difference that God really wants her to make. Actually, it means that the, uh, um, the, the New Testament becomes even more relevant to us because, you see, in New Testament days, the church was not the, uh, the, 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 the religion of power. That belonged to the uh, um, a Roman pagan religion. God's church was, um, um, was uh, shut out from the corridors of power but was actually discovering her real power that lay in dynamic Christian believers, many of whom we've never heard of. Actually, Colossians itself serves as a, a wonderful little window into that world. Most of the letters that are written in the, in the New Testament are written to quite significant centres of population where you could um, um, see the church sometimes having quite significant influence in the corridors of power. But not Colossians. Colossae was a little village, perhaps a um, few more than a hundred households in the Apostles Paul's day. It was up uh, a valley called the Lycus Valley, um, uh, away from the coast, away from the great city of Ephesus, which was down at the bottom of the valley uh, on the coast. It had once been a great city, but now it was um, relatively unknown. Not unknown to God. Not actually cut out from a part in God's great plan. So God in his wisdom chose to give us uh, this letter to a little church to actually give us a model perhaps for how dynamic God's church can be if she really grasps what he wants her to grasp. This morning then, the first eight verses of Colossians, we're just going to start to look at what Paul tells us he saw happening in this church, this little church, this village church, and how actually he saw that as a little example of something that was happening throughout the whole world of his day. We, with the benefit of hindsight, know that what Paul saw that, that in, in the bud became a glorious and fruitful tree. Let's see what he describes in uh, the bud. He first of all, then, um, begins in verses uh, 3 to 5 
by describing what he knows is happening in their hearts. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, he says, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Might help us actually if we look at the logic of what he says backwards in the reverse order from uh, which he which he describes it, so that we get it into into our mind. The first thing he says had happened to them is that they heard <coughs> a message. He describes that message in two ways. First of all, he describes it as the truth. Do you see that? Um, uh, you have a hope stored up in heaven you've heard about in the word of truth that has come to you. In Paul's day, as in our day, truth actually was a relatively malleable concept. There were a thousand and one little uh, um, secret societies, each one who promised to uh, introduce its members to um, secret truths about the world. And such societies were uh, tolerated, provided they didn't... um, Uh, disrupt society but um, uh, if they chose to say no this is the truth this is not just our little bit of truth this is the truth if they stood up and called other people to uh, give up on what they believed because it was false then the Christians always met opposition And that's what they did. Just down the valley in Ephesus um, uh, where the Apostle Paul had planted a church there were riots because they insisted that the Christians should throw away their little idols that they bought to, to worship Artemis. And those who made their living out of it were enraged. Elsewhere in the Roman world uh, uh, Christians uh, received uh, uh, the, the, the full fury of the power of Rome because they fu- refused to e- uh, worship the emperor as a god. He is no god, they said, he is only a man. There is no uh, only one god. When they got out of their little ghettos, when they refused to behave like the other little secret societies, when they spoke clearly, They always received opposition. As, um, uh, frankly, we will. Fascinated to uh, talking to some friends of mine who are um, um, uh, uh, older than me, not not young postmodern types, who said uh, uh, to a man and a woman, I'm amazed you believe in one truth. Surely there isn't one truth. I said, but there is. They're thinking about it at the moment. This message that uh, the Christians believed then, they believed was the truth, the explanation for this world and how this world works. The final word about who God is. That message Paul also describes as the gospel. 
That was a word that was originally described, uh, used to describe a, a proclamation of, of victory, the good news about the victory of, uh, of some great warrior or other. And in the Bible, it gets used of God's great victory, God's victory in the world, which has actually begun to reverse everything that has gone wrong in the world. The Bible says actually that three relationships that, uh, that we ought to have have been disrupted in this world. Most fundamentally we have lost our relationship with God himself because ever since the Garden of Eden we have turned away from God and we have disobeyed him and so we are cut off from him. Following on from that though, says the Bible, we not only lost our proper relationship with God, we lost our proper relationships with each other. So that in the midst of that rebellion we found other people as, as opposing us, as opposition to us, as threats to us. And so mankind cannot live together in harmony any longer. More than that, says the Bible, a third relationship has been disrupted. We were made to live in harmony with nature, with God's creation to care for it, to look after it, to, 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 to work the land. But now, as human beings have uh, developed in their, in their greed and their selfishness and their short-sightedness, in fact, our relationship with the whole of nature has been corrupted. And the good news of the Gospel is that God has set about to restore each of those relationships and he will do it. He will renew his whole creation, making a new heaven and a new earth which will not be ruined by us. He will restore our relationships with one another, making us into a perfect community of love and most fundamentally he will restore our relationship with himself. He's done the essential work of that, says the Bible, in Christ. Because Christ took the punishment for all our sins so that we can have a relationship with God now. In his church, he has begun that great project of renewing our relationship with himself and renewing our relationship with one another. As we overcome our greed and our selfishness and our short-sightedness and live better lives as well, he begins the first fruits of a better relationship with his creation. But its final fulfilment awaits when Jesus comes again, the new heaven and the new earth when once again God will dwell with all his people, when once again God's people will be perfectly restored into a new loving community, when once again God's creation will be as it was intended to be. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That is the most extraordinary good news that any of us could ever hear. Because it is the promise of the fulfilment of every wish and every desire that you could ever imagine having. We've been thinking about um, what are you longing for in, the, in, our, in our, um, our week uh, that ended last Sunday. Some people spoke about physical pleasures. Well, God will renew us 
physically, in a new physical creation. Perhaps for you it's emotional satisfaction. God's love never ceases, never dies, never fails. And he is beginning to teach people to love one another as well so that you find the first fruits of that that satisfying emotional relationships within his church now. Perhaps you long for awe and majesty. Everybody needs something to worship. The Bible tells us of a God who made the universe simply by speaking, who sustains the universe now simply by his word, who one day will restore his universe. What more awesome thing to worship can you have than a God who does that? Everything that we could ever long for, everything that we've ever wished for, God promises to fulfil for his people. There is nothing that will not be satisfied in eternity. That's the gospel, says Paul. That's the good news. And he says, because they had heard that gospel, they discovered hope. Hope in the Bible is not some vague hoping for the best. It is a solid assurance based on clear historical facts. Jesus rose from the dead. There's more evidence for that than there was for the existence of Julius Caesar. And on that foundation... The consistent message of the Bible is that God keeps his promises. God will do what he says he will do. And he's shown that in its first germinal form by raising Jesus from the dead. I see many people, you know, going through, through, through really difficult times. Comes with my job. And I see some people lapse into bitterness and self-pity and anger and depression and despair. I see them shriveling up. I see them turning in on themselves. But I see others, Christians, who have grasped that hope. They have seen what God's promise is. And they are able to rise above those particular short-term circumstances they are living through. Some of us watched the Shawshank Redemption uh, uh, last week. There was an extraordinary portrayal of this uh, prisoner, Andy Dufresne, who continued to hope in the most awful of circumstances. And there were times in the film when he almost seems jaunty. And uh, though he suffers terribly, he does seem immune. It's as if the prison walls disappear, says the uh, film at one point, because of that hope, because of that, 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 that vision that he has, that he is confident of. And he is not disappointed, and we will not be disappointed. They heard a message then. These ordinary people. A message that clearly said, this is the truth. This is what the world is all about. 
a message that was the most extraordinary good news. And they discovered hope. And that transformed their lives. Paul says, first of all, that uh, uh, the first dimension of that uh, transformation is faith. Faith springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven, he says in in, in verse 5. In other words, we learn to trust God. We begin to see that God has been working out his purpose for the whole of history and therefore it is reasonable for us to expect that he will complete that purpose because he says so. His word did not fail in the past. Why should it fail in the, in the future? He promised to send Jesus and he sent Jesus. He promised that he would establish a, a church, a global church, throughout every nation and that gospel has gone to every nation so that now God's church is global. He promised that his gospel message would never die though, people, though, though, though tyrants may try to kill all the Christians, though arrogant philosophers may, may claim they have disproved Christianity, though uh, great civilizations might try and lure Christians away from their faith, but it has never, they have never succeeded. God's church has continued now through 2,000 years. God's church has spread now throughout the whole world and God's church is more numerous now than it has ever been in history. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he made a promise that we see has come true. So when he said to his disciples on the Last Supper that we will be remembering in just a moment, I will not drink this cup, this fruit of the vine again until I drink it afresh with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you think he was lying? No, we can trust him. We can trust what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 when he says neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can trust God, says Paul. We can have faith. And the second way in which their lives were, were transformed, says Paul, is that they learned to love. You see that? We've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you. Don't believe those people who say that uh, you can be so heavenly minded, so obsessed with the future hope that you are no earthly good. It is not true, it does not work like that way. People that I know who have given themselves to others most sacrificially as Christians are people who, who, in whom Christian hope burns the brightest. We have confidence, you see, to give ourselves away, to not be self-preserving if we trust in our future hope. 
We know that we will not be the losers because we are promised eternal rewards in heaven. Our hearts are liberated to love, to forget about ourselves now and simply give to other people because we know in that self-abandonment there is infinite, eternal gain. All this had happened to those ordinary believers in that little village up there at the end of a dead end valley. Paul was enormously excited about it. Lives were transformed where that message had been heard. Hope had been found people's hearts were liberated to trust in God and to love other people. It's beautifully simple, isn't it? And yet extraordinarily revolutionary. Now, perhaps you haven't been changed like that yet. Perhaps one way or another that those things have not fitted together yet. Perhaps this is the first time you've heard that message, the true gospel hope that is set out before us of everything restored and renewed. Perhaps you've not yet learned to trust or hope. I often uh, quote the end of uh, Douglas Coupland's book, Life After God. Coupland's not, not, not a Christian, um, but his books are absolutely fascinating because in his ignorance of the Gospel, he so often shows with such great clarity what, uh, says what he's longing for. And this is what he says on nearly the last page of uh, his book. He says, Now here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. That I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. And I say, Douglas, read the beginning of Colossians. See where love comes from. It comes from hearing and understanding that message that God has for us. Discovering a hope which lies beyond the way this world is now, but is absolutely solid. Set your heart free, Douglas. 
And actually, frankly, a lot of Christians lead only semi-Christian lives uh, in this area, not really shaped by this, this, this beautiful, simple, revolutionary uh, message. Let me say to you, some, some perhaps are obsessed with blessings now. I don't want pie in the sky when I die. I want blessings now. That way lies bitterness. God gives us lots of good things now, but the primary hope he calls us to set our hearts on is in eternity. If you expect everything now, you will be a bitter, disappointed Christian. Maybe not even a Christian. Some, some are just not very attracted by eternity. Let me tell why not? Perhaps you just haven't seen what Scripture promises you. Some are just actually getting on with life, not, not, not thinking too deeply about it. You know, those are all truths in the background, but I've, just, I've got to earn a living, I've got to look after my family, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Let me say to you, that is like eating dry bread when there is a feast. If that is where your focus is, I, don't, I am not remotely surprised that your spiritual life seems half-hearted and empty. God says it will be until we take our eyes off that and look up and see what he's called us to and let that transform our hearts. That's what's happening, says Paul. Amongst you, I've heard about it. There is no place too insignificant, no person too insignificant for God to do that extraordinary miracle in their lives. The Apostle Paul prays for them regularly, he says. Though they're a village smaller than Kennington or Garsington or Boar's Hill. But you see, he not only sees what was happening in individual lives in this backwater, he sees that as an example. It's good news, not good use. He sees it as an example of uh, what actually is repeating itself again and again throughout his world. Verses 6 and 7. All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf who also told us of your love in the Spirit. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit. The message seems to have a life of its own. It doesn't need some great global organisation to promulgate it. It doesn't need a man-made master plan. It spreads like avian flu, though it brings life, not death. And though its carriers may be exterminated or quarantined, 
The message of the gospel is infectious and will not stop spreading. The flu is filling people with fear at the moment because of that power that it has. Does the power of the gospel to spread and bring life fill you with excitement? How our world has actually seen that in the last century. The power of the gospel on its own. In China, a tiny indigenous church was left in the hands of the communists to be destroyed. And it actually exploded with growth. Or in post-colonial Africa, everybody said that the church would disappear because it was just a a last remnant of colonialism. And And it has grown so powerful that the church of Nigeria alone has far more believers than... Than, uh, 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 than in Britain and Nigeria can remind the British Anglican Church of its gospel heritage. More than that, extraordinarily in the last few weeks, Uganda has generously given us an Archbishop of York. Because he doesn't need the power of capitalism, the, uh, uh, the force of uh, uh, um, Western economics to grow the gospel. Gospel itself flourishes actually against those forces so often and is transforming our world. The gospel was bearing fruit but it was bearing through fruit through ordinary believers. You heard it through Epaphras. Who? Exactly. We know virtually nothing about him. But there he is, founding a church, discipling them, passionately concerned for them, so that he's prepared to go all the way to Rome, where he knows Paul's in prison, to meet Paul and consult with Paul about how he can help this little flock of his up there in in the valley. And Paul says, that is repeated a thousand times, ten thousand times through my world. That is how the gospel spreads, through epiphrases, through having a power of its own. I wonder, could you be an epiphras? God is not looking for stars. He's not only looking for people who will go into full-time paid Christian ministry, you know. I doubt Epaphras received uh, um, any financial support from such a small village. He is looking for people whose lives have been transformed in the way that Paul describes. We have an extraordinary privilege in, in, in this city of actually having people come and go as they did down the valley in Ephesus, as Epaphras had done, as no doubt he wandered down to Ephesus on some errand and met the Apostle Paul and his life was never the same. Perhaps you came to Oxford and that has happened to you. Finding faith for the first time, perhaps having your faith faith really set alight. And you will be, in a decade, uh, in a decade from now, 
Deary me, there will probably be about no more than ten who are here still sitting in, in, in these chairs. If that, that's what's happened in the last decade. Just of interest, who was here a decade ago or at least a part of Magdalen Road Church a, a decade ago? No, you weren't, Jackie. It's less than a decade. Just on the cusp. <laughs> Half a dozen of us. It'll be the same again. And where will you be? See, if God has got hold of you, you will be serving in a local church, committed to those believers, caring for them, seeing the gospel grow. That is why I am not downhearted about God's church. Because I see ordinary people whose lives are being changed and I know they will spread around this country and beyond and the gospel will bear its fruit. I take the warning seriously. There are serious issues for, uh, uh, for God's church in this country to engage with. But you see, I never hear a despairing word from the New Testament. Because the New Testament was written by people of faith who were confident about the future. And their confidence has been vindicated. Will you be an Epaphras? Will you allow the truth of the gospel to really transform your life? Because if you do, you will be a part of that story that Paul is talking about. A gospel message going throughout the world. And you will one day be filled with such a rapture, such a joy, such a delight when God's promises finally come true in the new heaven and the new earth. That you will be overwhelmed with delight forever and ever. Do you want that?